In honor of the San Francisco Green Film Festival, we are covering a handful of outstanding documentaries. New films that are as brilliantly produced as they are critical to know, as they are hopefully shaping our society and our way of life. We are starting today with River Blue, a close look at the unbelievable environmental implications of fast and cheap fashion. That's our focus in this hour. Fast and cheap fashion, the disastrous consequences of the clothing industry. Here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. We here at An Organic Conversation are always focused on the positive, on what's working, what's the lesson, and what can we further improve upon. We call it the language of possibility. And so our show titles usually reflect this sentiment when we speak of environmental or social injustice as the frame for our shows. We then speak of the possibility to transcend the challenge and create positive change. Well, we will do so again, but today, in years of producing this show, this is one of the toughest episodes to do so. The destruction is so extreme and overwhelming and so visible that even our show title, usually with a hopeful note, speaks of the insane conditions in which the world produces garments. Fast and cheap fashion, the disastrous consequences of the clothing industry. All that and more coming up in just a minute here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. Our focus in this hour are the disastrous consequences, in this case, environmental consequences of the clothing industry. Fast and cheap fashion. There's a new documentary hitting the film festivals right now. It's called River Blue. And we are speaking with the writer and producer and with the director of River Blue in just a minute here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Stay tuned for more.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. River Blue, a new documentary, is making its way to movie theaters and particularly to film festivals around the country right now. We are in April. It's Earth Day month. And we are looking at a handful of documentaries that are coming to movie theaters near you, hopefully. In this case, River Blue, a close look at the disastrous consequences of the clothing industry, fast and cheap fashion. And on the phone with me now are David McElwright, the writer and director, and Roger Williams, the producer and director of River Blue. Gentlemen, do I have you on the line? Yes, you do. And David here. Thank you. Thank you for making the time. I know this is Earth Day month, and with it, film festivals, in this case, the Green Film Festival in San Francisco, and your documentary is part of that selection to be shown. I just want to frame the conversation with, you have a long history in filmmaking, documentary, and otherwise. What made you decide to create a documentary on the clothing industry, particularly? Yeah, it's Roger here. I actually started this project, and I was looking to do a environmental documentary on water. I'd never done an environmental documentary before. And uh, as I was going through my research and, and thinking of different water issues, both on oceans and rivers, I, I came up with a lot of the problems, but I was also, also looking for different solutions as well. And one of the things that happened is I actually was talking to David, who's a good friend of mine and fellow filmmaker, and uh, started talking to him about what was going on in rivers and oceans. And actually, it was a little while later, a couple of weeks later, he came back to me and said, hey, I found this photo from China, and he shared it with me, and it was, it was of a river that had this blue-black kind of stain coming out of it. And we went, what's that about? And it turns out it's the fashion industry and, and uh, second biggest polluter in the world next to oil. So thanks to David, he found that photo, and we were able to really do some further research to get into what became River Blue. Thank you, Roger. David, do you want to add to that? What made you passionate about river water quality and the garment industry? We kind of focused in on the garment industry. That was, came a little bit later. I mean, both Roger and I are, you know, we, we appreciate the environment we live in, and we've both been working over the years doing projects that were river-related or water-related. We know that um, a huge amount of people in the world are going to not have water, and that was one of our big concerns. And so we, when we started looking, we thought, well, who is impacting, you know, killing our water resources, and, and we came across the fashion industry as, as one of the key polluters. And um, so that's where we kind of used that as our jumping off point and then figured out that um, we needed a hook for the story, which led us to uh, Blue Jeans. And uh, we figured that uh, it's such an iconic product that almost everybody in the world has a pair of Blue Jeans. So we thought that if we could tell the story about the dirty secret behind Blue Jeans, and how much water it uses and how much pollution is expelled from the factories making blue jeans, then um, then we would have that hook, that story that everybody could relate to. The movie starts off saying 97% of all water, because the, the planet is over 70% water, is actually salt water and not suitable for human consumption in any way. So that leaves us with only 3% of fresh water, and that's the the water supply for the industries, drinking water, a billion people in China alone who are facing water pollution now. Can you frame the importance or the sacredness of, of water a little more? Sure. Well, again, water is, is a truly precious resource. 
And when you come right down to it and you look at it, it's really just around 1% that is fresh water that's available. The rest, again, locked up in, in ice in the polar caps. And, of course, then the rest of it is saline. So, you know, we really don't have that much water. And you don't have to go very far. Uh, I live in Vancouver, Canada, and it rains a lot, like Seattle. Uh, but, again, you have to just go down to California and drive down the I-5, and you can see uh, the water issues. And when you go around the world, again, there's water issues everywhere. So we really wanted to get into the story of water. And again, with the industrial uses, the, the garment industry and the fashion industry taking up so much of those freshwater resources, we just knew that we had a story that should be told. What are the materials that are giving you the, the greatest concerns? How is fashion made? Can you give us a list of of all the, the toxic substances that actually go into a piece of apparel or, in this case, jeans? In our, in our research, we came across a lot of uh, material that was being output by Greenpeace. And Greenpeace has been kind of fighting the toxic pollution coming from the fashion industry for quite a few years now. And they did quite a few studies. They tested a lot of the water in both China and places like Indonesia, And they were finding that there are a lot of heavy metals, metals like cadmium, chromium, mercury, lead, and copper, um, in a lot of their water and sediment samples that they were taking out of rivers like in Xingtang, which is a city that we filmed in, in China. So those heavy metals were coming out of those factories. And, of course, a lot of those heavy metals are neurotoxic, carcinogenic, and they disrupt uh, you know, our, our human body that, to such an extent that it's causing cancer of different organs. We also found that one of the Greenpeace activists was telling us a little story about, you know, how the rivers in China, when they're outpouring into the oceans, I mean, they're reaching, they were finding samples uh, in, from, for instance, the, the samples that traveled from China all the way up into the Canadian North where they would find uh, heavy metals that were, you know, linked back to these cancer-causing agents in China from the, the toxic manufacturing of, of blue jeans. So, I mean, that, that shows that it's not just a, a Chinese problem, but it's a, it's a problem that affects the whole world. Yeah, you're talking about um, finding it in the liver of a polar bear, just as yeah. with Rachel Carson, who could show that um, toxins or pesticides uh, were found in eggshell of the osprey. So this has traveled literally half, halfway around the globe to end up in the Arctic. Absolutely. And again, you know, there's a, there's potassium permanganate and other acids and whatever else that are all being dumped without any sort of water treatment at all in a, a number of those South uh, East Asian countries. So when they're, when those riverways are just used as sewers, it kills everything in their, in their path. And a number of them that we were on and paddled on uh, were biologically dead. And they were bubbling, and especially the Chaturam in Indonesia, it was bubbling from the bottom. And when we first saw that, I was like, why is it bubbling like that? You know, sometimes you'd think, well, that's fish breathing, but it wasn't. It was off-gassing of all the pollution that had sunk to the bottom. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. Our topic in this hour is fast and cheap fashion, the disastrous consequences of the clothing industry, a new critical documentary that is making its round through film festivals, hopefully near you soon. It's called River Blue, and we're speaking with the writer and director and producer and director, David McElwright and Roger Williams today.
Roger, before we talk about the picture of destruction, which is really stunning, you guys were able to capture that to such a degree. It's it's one of the hardest hitting documentaries of recent months and maybe years that I've seen. Why are those organophosphates, dyes, dyes kind of make sense for fashion, but why why is clothing in need of such high level of heavy metals and other toxic pollutants that are harmful to wildlife, rivers, and certainly humans as well. Where in the production is this required? First of all, I don't think it's required, and we kind of proved that. But it is being used, and again, it's usually used at the point where the threads are being dyed, and they use a lot of those chemicals as fixing agents to adhere whatever the, whatever the color is to the textile or the cloth. So that's where a lot of the chemicals are used. The stressing of denim and other materials, again, they use additional chemicals to create that distressed look and all that kind of stuff. But what we found is that there are processes that uh, are very unique that can take out those uh, those chemicals and can still be a fixing agent to keep the color on the cloth. And that's what we wanted to, to look for and find is some of these positive stories that actually we can share with the world. And right now they're being used in a very you know, small amount, but if they, you know, adhered to by the larger organizations, then it could make a significant impact to the to the world. Yes, and we'll dive into that um, much deeper in just a minute. But David, can you talk about the environmental destruction that Roger just touched on, that river is biologically dead? In your documentary, you were showing and saying that it's not even really the constitution of water anymore. It's almost like a a thick morass-like um, biological dead zone with garbage floating knee-deep often in addition, and we are talking India, Indonesia, and China particularly. I'm, I'm certain this is happening in other parts of the world as well, but the level of destruction is stunning. Can you speak to that? One example that really brought home to both Roger and I, and especially Roger because he, he, he was in a small boat that headed out on the Tataram River in Indonesia. This is a river that we came across, and we knew that it was, you know, it at one time had been a beautiful river where people, the, the villages along the river were, you know, fishing, and it was gorgeous, and they were they were catching and fish and, and feeding their families. And by the time we got there, the river had turned into a, a, a sewage. Uh, basically, that's what it was. And there was garbage that just floated through. I mean, it felt like you could almost walk on the water. It, it, it was so, so much strewn with garbage and plastic and, and stuff that was being dumped out of the the um, factories along the river from a lot of the fashion industry that, down there. And this river, I mean, Roger got into the small dugout, basically, and went out with a fisherman who was now, he, he, he wasn't fishing for fish anymore. He was actually fishing for plastic. But the one thing that struck me was not only the smell uh, of the river, but also I was sitting there and looking at it, and it was bubbling from below, and it was almost like a, it was almost like a witch's cauldron kind of thing. I think that Chaterum was probably the worst river that we were on, and uh, certainly from Roger's point of view, I, um, if he had fallen in, I, you know, he probably would have dissolved into acid himself. Yeah, I was a little uneasy paddling around with that fisherman. And again, the plastic that he was collecting was just floating on the top of the surface, and, and it was, you know, there is 
just great masses of plastic floating by. But he was picking up stuff that he knew that he could eke out a living in the recycling side of things and, you know, could make a dollar or two a day. Yeah, usually when we talk about fashion industry, of course, we talk about child labor and, and really labor conditions, uh, particularly yeah. in India and Pakistan and maybe Indonesia at this point. But you are touching on or you're, you're depicting the environmental impact, which then has a direct impact even on non-garment industry related living. Uh, the communities that are affected by these industries, the human suffering within the system that are touched by the system using water, of course, for, for drinking water, cancer, liver diseases, endocrine dis disruption, everything you just mentioned, heavy metal poisoning. There's a, an unbelievable scene where a fisherman goes out and just catches the dead fish that are floating on the surface and then sells them at the market, feeds them to his family and sells them as the market because he doesn't need to fish for them anymore. He can just collect the dead fish. It's interesting how we how we have expanded or how your film is allowing us to expand the view from labor conditions to environmental impact right back to humans. Uh, where Where else did you see that direct connection? You're talking about communities that have millions of people relying on this river, right? Yeah, actually, I mean, we saw those throughout Southeast Asia, and, and there's places that are basically, they're called cancer villages because they are so toxic and because the people have to use that water because they have nothing else to use. So they're using it for bathing, for drinking, for you know, all their cooking. It's just it's unbelievable to actually be in those environments and see what they're actually having to live and how they're having to live. And then basically they have to work in those factories as well. So in Bangladesh, for instance, there was a fair amount of child labor, but and we didn't see very many people, if any, that were over 40. And, you know, that, and that probably is because of the detrimental ways in which they have to live. And there's a scene in the film that I still, I shake my head at. There's two young boys swimming in this what we thought was a river in India, and basically we found out afterwards it was, the river was half a mile wide at least, and it was covered with foam, and uh, we found out it was basically all chemical and human and industrial waste, and there was no water in it whatsoever, and there's people living beside it. So there really, there was no water there. So that's hard to actually see, and, and we definitely wanted to bring that to the people because we as people can make a choice and help out. David, do you do you want to add to that? The places that we went to, uh, you know, what really bothered me the most is actually, you know, Roger and I could go into a place and spend a month or whatever, three weeks a month, and and then we would go back to our homes in beautiful Canada and and look around and say, wow, we 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 really appreciate what we've got up here. But yeah. unless you travel to places like in India or, or Indonesia or some of the places in China that we went to and and see the impact on the human population in those villages, I mean, that's when it really strikes you. And that's when you really realize that we live in kind of a cocoon up here in North America. And until you go to these places and see that these people are living with no water or little water, you know, and you see the impact on their lives, that's when you really realize that something's got to be done. There's going to be billions of people without any water in the future. And if we continue to go down the routes that we're going right now, That impact is only going to grow. Uh, I remember one of the um, lawyers, environmental lawyers that we spoke to, she mentioned the fact that, you know, the impact 
in Bangladesh, for instance, the impact on the population there, if they don't have water, they're going to have to migrate to somewhere else where there is water. And she was talking about basically they'd come to North America. And that's what we'll see down in the future because they won't have any water. They've got to go somewhere and they will impact us in North America down the road. So all these things that we're talking about, it's a global problem and there's also a global solution. That's what we have to look at it in, in that way. Yeah, she was speaking of hydrocyte, which is an interesting yeah. new term, the killing of water and then the consequences on society. And we do want to talk about what can be done because North America is beautiful and Canada as it is. We are one of the largest consumers of that cheap fashion, maybe with China's yeah. economy now rising as well. Uh, but we are absolutely responsible for having introduced the idea of cheap fashion and we're now paying the consequences or starting to um, as people in Indonesia, China and India have been paying the consequences for, for several years, for decades at this point. We'll take a quick break to honor our underwriters, but please stay on the line. We'll be right back. And that is David McElwright, the writer and director, and Roger Williams, the producer and director of River Blue, a great new documentary, um, hard-hitting and crucial at the same time, a close look at the garment industry's impact, in this case particularly of jeans production, Uh, the impact on the environment and on communities in those countries, India, China, and Indonesia, particularly, and what we buy when we buy cheap fashion here in North America or Canada. Riverbluethemovie.eco eco, Riverbluethemovie.eco is the website. Um, this is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Fast and cheap fashion, the disastrous consequences of the clothing industry is our focus in this hour. And again, we are speaking with David McElwright and Roger Williams, the writer and director and producer and director of River Blue. Riverbluethemovie.eco is the website, a new documentary looking at the garment industry's impact on the environment and communities in China, India, and Indonesia. Roger, we were talking before the break about the impact of the industry on communities beyond the labor conditions. And 
either you or David were talking about the boys swimming in the foam river, which is all chemicals, and actually smiling, having a great time uh, swimming through it. Have you been able to interact and really communicate with those uh, communities that are so dramatically affected by it? Have you had a chance to speak with those boys and and educate while you were making the film? Or was it really more the production and you had to deal with your overwhelm of what you were seeing? No, we actually, we did talk with locals uh, everywhere we went around the world. And um, a lot of them have just resigned that this is their fate. This is... Mm-hmm. They can't do anything further. This is what they have to deal with, and this is how they have to live. And so they're making the best of it. But it was certainly disheartening to David and myself to to see what was going on globally in, in a lot of these countries. So, no, we, we definitely talked to a lot of those um, in fishermen, a lot of the, uh, you know, again, the locals that we had run into in, in various communities. And do they know? Do they know of the degree of environmental destruction? Is that communicated overall through the government there, the local governments? Is How much is the environmental degradation really a part of that culture and educational basis? You know, I think they do know and understand that, that they're not living in a very healthy environment. Uh, to what degree do they know uh, that? I couldn't, you know, give you an, an exact answer. Um, but they, they do know that there's, you know, a lot of poison. And they mentioned that there's, you know, if you see dead fish floating on the, on the surface, uh, why is that? So they, they understand that there's a lot of poisons in a lot of their waters. But again, you know, to them, it's like, well, it's, it's easy fishing. So we'll pick those up and, and we might as well eat them and we might as well take some to market and try to make a few dollars off those as well. Yeah, and it, the, the pictures of these boys swimming in the foam, uh, as well as you know, kids washing their faces or even brushing their teeth with with water that is that we know now because of your thanks to your movie is is basically a dead zone or is really heavily polluted at least uh, is just heartbreaking to to see that that is their only source of drinking water. There's no well or fountain or anything closer by that is cleaner as these heavy metals sink into the groundwater and aquifers, uh, it's really, it's everywhere, right? Yeah, and actually, when we were in some of those um, communities, uh, we, you know, we did see some wells, and, and um, we did talk to, again, the locals, and those wells, actually, they're even uh, very polluted as well, because the aquifer has, of good water has depleted, and where they used to just go down to maybe uh, 30 feet or 30 meters for to get fresh water. Now they're having, in some cases, we were told that they would have to drill down a hundred meters or more uh, to find any kind of clean water that would be usable. And and in a lot of cases, they just don't have the facilities or the money to actually be able to do something like that. So again, they're using, even the well water is not necessarily the cleanest of water. David, do you want to add to that? Yeah, it was interesting. When we were in, especially in India, there's whole communities. We were in this slum area at one point uh, doing some shooting. And, you know, the, there's a, the whole community kind of rallied around uh, one or two pipes. That was it. And so we're talking thousands of people that are jammed in together. And their only water source, uh, it almost seemed like if there was a tap to be turned on and there was only one tap in the whole community, I don't know how often it flowed. But remember, Roger, when we went to this one area and it almost like... Sure. 
there was absolutely nothing happening. And all of a sudden, all these kids started running with buckets. And we looked down, and here it is, this one lady, she's turned on some, you know, hose and basically filling up all water jugs for, for the whole community. And, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of very striking. That hits you right away to, to think that, you know, for you and I in North America, we can just walk into any of our taps and turn it, and there you go. We don't think about the action of getting water out of our taps. But there, they almost have to plan their day and plan their life around getting water, which is, it's striking and it's uh, sad in a lot of ways. Both of you, and, and especially you, Roger, talked already about that there are alternatives. It's a film about water. Uh, the fashion industry is one of the world's greatest polluters of fresh water. I did not know that. Uh, and that's, I think, a really important message that the fashion industry, one of the world's greatest polluters of fresh water. So with every T-shirt that we are buying, there's kind of invisible ink, and your documentary actually made that ink visible, that it says, I'm I'm destroying the planet and harm human and aquatic life. When we buy cheap fashion, when we engage in the uh, you know the brands that we well know from from Old Navy to Gap to you name it, where you can buy a T-shirt for seven dollars, what can people as co-creators do, and how much does the industry really take responsibility in this? Um, do they, and do they do fast enough? And what can we do meanwhile? I think what we found is that, you know, the, I'm going to say the largest companies, especially the kind of the publicly traded companies, are some of the worst offenders because they're really just looking at sure. shareholder value. They're, they just want to make, you know, the money that they can as quickly as they can. And I think what, um, on the financial and economic side, what, what really got me was when we went to El Paso, Texas, And El Paso, Texas used to be the blue jean capital of the world, but the um, North American Free Trade Agreement came into play. And then the, those large companies went, well, we don't have to be in the U.S. anymore. We can go, why don't we just go to Mexico because the labor is cheaper in Mexico. So that's what they did. And then after that, they kind of went, well, we don't even have to be in Mexico. Let's look for the very cheapest uh, labor sources. And that's why they ended up over in Southeast Asia. And again, they weren't looking at the environment per se. They were just looking at labor costs. But what came along with that is they really outsourced uh, all of their pollution because the pollution and environmental controls in, in those countries either were non-existent or it's kind of like the Wild West or they just didn't care. And so when they outsourced all that production, that's really the, what, what happened. You know, you had cheap labor, you... They could make things cheaper, quicker, and and that's where fast fashion really kind of started from that kind of uh, situation. And then and then the other global leaders of fashion they looked at that as well and went, well, we can do the same. And that's what they've been doing. Um, it was interesting, actually. Just on a side note, I was talking to somebody from Barcelona just recently, and that's where Zara is headquartered. And uh, this person said to me, do you know that Zara actually has 17 seasons? Meaning, you know, we used to have spring, summer, fall, winter for our clothing seasons, but they've, they've created and built on that fast fashion model so much that they now have 17 seasons. So basically every couple of weeks, we now have uh, a new fashion line coming out. And that's, that is the epitome of fast fashion, I guess. 
Yeah, it's it's something we got to look at and decide as a humanity is that what we want to is that what the road we want to go down. Well, they outsourced pollution, but they didn't really because it is hitting us, as you said. Any global problem is now, uh, or any real environmental problem is now a global problem, wherever it, it happens. Is. Uh, from from climate change to heavy pollution, it will or is hitting not just the polar bear in the Arctic, but really us on a geopolitical level, uh, just as well. Homeland security, labor uh, here in the U.S. and in Canada. This is this is one planet, and everything affects everything else, of course, good and yeah, bad. Absolutely. Have you seen that through your documentary and through your work and the work of Greenpeace that you mentioned? there is greater awareness now, at least in some of these manufacturers, mm -hmm. or is it all lip service? David, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, one of my favorite characters in the film was Orsola de Castro, and she was she was fantastic to chat to her. She was totally uh, open, and uh, she's a great character. She's a, an eco-fashion designer out of London, England, that we stopped in and, and spent the afternoon with and talking. And she was telling us about the fashion industry and And her, her basic uh, mantra was that the fashion industry has to have transparency, no toxicity and traceability, and that the consumers, you know, the people who buy in all these products, are going to demand that who and where and how our clothes are being made. And, and if indeed the manufacturing of the fashion is, is actually having a negative impact on the environment, and she was very forthright about that. And, and I think that, you know... Films like ours and other films that are out there that are kind of highlighting what's going on in the fashion industry, I think that's bringing, you know, this issue to the forefront of consumers' minds, and I think that's a great thing. I think the first line that we said in the film, Roger can correct me, but I think it was, it was a character from our head of Greenpeace at the time, and he said, you know, that, that war won't be fought over oil, but war will be fought over water. Um, and I think that's... That was a true statement that will happen down the line. I think it's a strong possibility that as we keep growing in our population and at the same time we're losing our valuable water resources, that that's where war will end up, you know, over the, over the, over that resource, water, not oil. Yeah, sure. Um, and Roger, Roger can, you know, one of the first things that we used to always talk about was with, with our main character, Mark Angelo. He used to, you know, I mean, he's, he's a man who's, paddled more rivers in the, on the planet than anybody else. And he used to always talk about the rivers are like the capillaries of our planet and that we can't live without them. And that, you know, he was very sad by the fact that, you know, when he went out, he saw the rivers and becoming more and more and more polluted. And then they knew that, you know, he makes a comment that he knows that the planet's going to die if we lose our rivers to pollution. And that's a very strong statement. Yes, and there are alternatives that you are showing in your movie, as you already talked about, from garment producers who are using now the leftover fabric of apparel manufacturing, um, perfectly fine uh, yarn or, or uh, textile that is being turned into new clothing, uh, or alternatives, better, uh, way more environmentally friendly, less water and energy consuming methods to 
creating genes of dyeing using lasers and ozone and many other techniques that are now being developed, including even looking at biomimicry and um, using shell fragments from crustaceans to abrase genes for that special look that we all want. So you are talking about the manufacturers that are out there now, young, innovative, who are creating alternatives, and maybe those genes cost a little bit more, but since all the other costs are ex externalized, the environmental impact costs of large manufacturers, maybe this is still a deal and how many genes do we really need. Um, but I was talking about the large industry. Roger, what's your experience with brands like Zara or Gap or Old Navy? Um, do, they, do they actually feel honest responsibility now? Was that, was that your sense now after producing this movie? No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, and I wish they would feel some responsibility, but I, I certainly don't see that. And I have been talking to some of those brands, and uh, because of course we're meeting different people, and and actually kind of an interesting side story. I did an interview not too long ago with a woman who was working in trends, and so she writes trend reports for various large manufacturers, mm -hmm. and she really wanted to see the film, and and after the film. After she saw it, and you know, she called me up, did an interview, and she was almost in tears. She said, "You know, I've been in this business for 30 years, but I really didn't have any understanding of how our clothing is actually made." And she actually called me up a few weeks ago and said, "You know, this that film has impacted me so much. I actually quit my job." And she said, "I'm now looking for a new job in sustainable fashion, but she said I'm really not interested in working for those large brands that don't have any uh, any will." to actually start looking at or changing. And having said that, I do know that there are some large manufacturers that are looking at how they can start to implement change. One of those is actually Levi's. And Dave and I approached Levi's uh, early on in the, in the film and said, you know, we would really like to go to their factory and actually tell a good news story about Levi's because we know that they have a product that's called Waterless. And in their denim lines, so we wanted to tell a good news story, but um, they were not going to have us anywhere near any of their facilities. Uh, and we don't know why we gave them the exact positive questions that we wanted to ask, but they did not want to have us uh, inside their, their organization, um, which was too bad because I really did, you know, we, Dave and I really wanted to tell a good news story. But that also leads me to believe that, you know, even though they have a product that's called Water Less, how much water and how much less? Is it really, or is this just a marketing spin? Mm -hmm. Again, I think it kind of comes back to us as consumers and the people in the fashion industry who should ask the questions: um, What, how is this product made, and and is it truly waterless? You know, Levi's in part of our film, and we used Levi's own research to 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 show how much water is being used to make one pair of jeans. So again, if they're making it now with less water well, tell us and, and be more transparent. We can all do our part, not only by choosing ethically made clothing, but also by cutting back on clothing, just buying, purchasing clothing. So I think that that's a, a good point to remember. We've done it with food, right? Know your farmer, know where your food comes from. Yeah. So now it's going into all these other industries and apparel because of our extreme consumption 
uh, is is one of those big new next topics that we do need to tackle. That's Roger Williams, producer and director, and David McElright, writer and director of River Blue, riverbluethemovie.eco is the website for screenings. Thank you so much for your time, gentlemen, and good luck getting the word out okay. all the way around the world. Pleasure to have you today. Thank you, Aldo. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Speak soon. Take care. Bye-bye. And that is our topic in this hour of an organic conversation, fast and cheap fashion, the disastrous consequences of the clothing industry. I'm Helge Helberg, and we're staying with the topic of sustainability. We just touched on that from clothing to food. We've done it with food. Know your farmer. Know where your food comes from. Know how it is produced. Here's the update from the produce doc the consumer segment of how to buy it what to choose how to store it and what to do with it with earl herrick here is what's in season and with us as always is now the voice of the san francisco produce market mr organic mr earl herrick of earl's organic produce earl are you there Hello, Helga. Hello. How are you doing? I'm I'm actually really good. I'm loving I'm loving this season. Layers of clothing and cooler nights, which help me sleep, and tea and candles and the foods that I'm used to from Germany. What yeah. is that change in the produce dock? And the change on the on the street is is palatable. Uh-huh. You know, the, all the excitement and the and the colors and the fragrances of, of summer and fall are, are gone and you're you're kind of digging in deep with citrus and apples and pears mm-hmm. and, and then winter squash and all that and those are all fantastic things and the other thing that becomes more and more prominent that we're going to talk about today is the potato scene ah nice and but you know potatoes have been around forever and it's one of those north american crops and or at least america america's crops and they've when I first got in business in the late 70s and 80s, uh, one of the uh, families I was doing, which I was doing business with, the Farsadis, and she was the first grower that I dealt with that, that had the yellow fin potato. And uh, that was kind of, back then, the first variety outside of your, you know, your russet and your red potato. You, it was this yellow fin, which tasted like butter. And since then, it's just been an onslaught of different varieties. They just keep on coming. And it's interesting because corn and potatoes, I know there are thousands of varieties, maybe one of the most diverse crops or plants you can have out there. We have thousands of potato varieties. Mm-hmm. Luckily, you're saying we're seeing at least a dozen or so back in the marketplace of what yeah. was one or two. You know, I want to focus a little bit on, on those fingerling types. Yeah, There's uh, and a couple names I'm going to throw out there, a purple fiesta and a uh, ruby crescent, and a red French, and a, and then there's a banana one. Most of these are very, very dense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're great for salads because they hold their shape. And I, I like to, I, I think they make an incredible uh, mashed potato, but some people don't like them because they're not particularly fluffy. They're kind of like dense, but boy, they are something else. Because for me, I put a lot of other things with mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. Any, anything that's around, I will throw into a mashed potato. So those those are the four that are coming around now. What's what's nice for in the marketing aspect of those and, and other potatoes is is now there's the bag potato, which has always been around for the russet, but the 
these fingerlings, you can get them in a, they're in a pound and a half or a pound and a quarter, and they're small, and they're, and rather than have to pick through, it's a really convenient thing. And, and, the, and the potatoes that they put in there are generally uh, uh, number ones, other than the, the shape is sometimes a little funny. And the shape for uh, any of these fingerling potatoes, they're well, why they're called fingerlings. They look like finger and joints and different little objects, but they're an incredible potato, and I would recommend if you've never had one, this is the time of year to start eating them. And you, you I mean, they, they cook quicker, right, because of their, their smaller... Um, they yep. they roast quicker. They're just in really easy to manage. You can you don't need to wonder if you need two or three as an as a you know adult male. I I do ten and then see if I can eat yep. the rest next day. They're just <laughs> a little bit easier to handle all around. You don't peel them because the yep. you just wash right. them well. How how has the rain changed the availability? Not really. Has it's not you know, affecting. It, you know, it really hasn't. The you know the potatoes we see out here in California. They're mostly northern California up to Oregon and Washington. And most of the most potatoes are going to be harvested in July, maybe up until the first of November. And they flourish under most any kind of weather. What they don't want to do, you don't want to keep in the ground to the point where it's now uh, there's a frost. You don't you don't want to do that, but you can keep them in the ground up until and they store best in the ground uh, up until you get a frost. What many growers do is they will They will monitor the crop as it's growing and, and dig and, and go around in their field and dig up different potatoes to, to look at the sizing because what they don't want to do is have them get too big. They will outgrow the size because potatoes can get too big. So they monitor them by occasionally digging some up, and when they get to the just to the point where they want them, they, they kill off the plant above the ground. And then... They allow about two to three weeks to go by so the, the potato gets to cure. And that, the curing is the process of the skin getting a little firm because otherwise it's going to scuff up and not be attractive. Mm. And the killing of the plant means the chlorophyll is sh shut off, basically, and they just lay in yeah. the ground to, to cure, to harden off a little. Yes. Now, some people just use a, a device and, and, and cut off the plant, and other people are going, going along and, and using propane and burning it because sometimes when you cut it off, it will still grow, mm -hmm. and that means the potato's growing, and you basically you're, what you're doing is stopping the growth. Right. So from a consumer perspective, what do you do with them at home? Do you the, the endless question of do potatoes need to go into the crisper or because yeah. most of us don't have a, a root cellar anymore. Right. What do you well, do? You know, yeah, you want to keep them in a dark, mild place. They don't necessarily have to go into a refrigerator. But if it does, you want to keep them, you don't need to keep them in the coldest part. They store really well, but you don't want to keep them more than, you know, a couple weeks. They will get soft and they will sprout. And that's, those are the two things you want to look for. If you're walking down the aisle, you don't, you don't want to be purchasing sprouting or uh, very soft. It should be a very firm, and kind of bright-looking uh, potato. Now, bright on a russet, it's a brown color it's white potatoes so you're not necessarily going to see a brightness to it but again you want to pick it up and it should be uh you know very solid in your in your hand once they sprout at home um do you know if you can still eat them or they just change flavor or they they're no longer edible well you know what i've heard and you could probably speak to this better is i've heard that europeans don't buy them until they're already sprouting the sprouting means that it, 
one advantage of sprouting is that it's, it's losing its moisture. And, and uh, that is one of the things you want to have. You want to have a, a, a lower moisture potato. But for me, to answer your question, I just knock the sprouts off and I eat them. Uh-huh. It's not a problem. Not yeah. a problem at all. Great. Um, potatoes. Lots of varieties. Lots of heirloom stuff back in the stores finally. And prices are stable because the rain didn't really affect the crop, yeah? No, you know, there's a good crop this year. You're going to find some, some good pricing anywhere from, um, you know, a dollar, uh, $1.99 a pound uh, up to like two $2.99. The more uh, exotic, like the fingerlings, might be a little more expensive. Mm. But I would also take advantage if you see any that are in a bag or in a net. They're, they're going to represent a little bit of a value. And, and it's, a, it's a fine way to store them, too, when you take them home. The interesting thing about potatoes is they're kept like an, like, kind of like an apple under, under highly uh, high-tech storage. So they monitor the oxygen and the temperature and everything. Mm-hmm. But what I've been told by people that know a lot about potatoes is that the potato knows what's going on outside of that storage unit, meaning... If there's a mild winter, <laughs> no I, I know it's silly stuff. If it's a mild winter, potatoes will sprout early. If it's a cold winter, they do not hardly sprout at all. But the fact is, they're outside of that environment. They're in the storage already. Oh, that's so brilliant. So, nature, so, nature knows. Yeah, there's something going on there. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. That is so out. interesting. That's great. <laughs> yes, we can't trick potatoes. We can't even trick potatoes. We can't trick the That's voter. Right. We can't trick potatoes. <laughs> All good. That's Earl Herrick. Right, Thank you, Earl. And um, will you feature different varieties on your website or Facebook page? Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely. earlsorganic.com. Of course, the website. Check it out for up-to-date information of what is hitting the marketplace, what to look out for, and how to best buy it, earlsorganic.com. Thanks so much for the time. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you, Helga. Awesome. Take it easy now. Thanks, you too. Take care. Bye. Bye. And then sums up another hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Take care. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. And Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. Also, Earl's Organic Produce, 
a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family-owned and operated since 1980, Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Lastly, thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Organic Conversation and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Thank you.